Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Let him who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Probably the biggest enemy of enthusiasm is time. Human beings have a remarkable and sad capacity for getting tired of wonderful things. Almost every one of you can think back on something probably not too far in the past that you were really enthusiastic about and now don't feel any particular enthusiasm about at all. It's all faded. Your first day on vacation on the coast, the sunset was so spectacular, so breathtaking, you just had to sing. And a week later, you didn't see it anymore. Vacationers get tired of sunsets, millionaires get tired of money, children get tired of toys, and Christians weary with well-doing. The first excitement of that Sunday school class, remember it? They asked you, you were a little nervous, you prayed, God said go, you went, oh, it was good. Important kids, great study material, leaning on God, power. And then, sort of got laborious and heavy, and all the joy went out, and it was not the same anymore. Or maybe it wasn't Sunday school. Maybe it was when you were driving the van. Maybe it was you were, you were teaching the Lao English. Or you were leading that Bible study in your home. Or visiting newcomers on Tuesday night. Or reading the Bible through for the first time. Or working in the emergency center. But now, all that wonderful enthusiasm, the inner power and the joy have seeped away. It's a chore. You've lost heart and grown weary in well-doing. Galatians 6.9 says, Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. I don't think it means that you can never change jobs. You've got to stay with that one Sunday school class for the next 50 years. If we ask, well, what is the well-doing that we may not grow weary in, probably the answer given nearest at hand is the fruit of the Spirit in 5.22. Don't grow weary in patience. Don't grow weary in being kind or good or faithful or gentle or self-controlled. Don't weary of manifesting all your peace and joy in all kinds of acts of love. If you do, if you grow weary in bearing the fruit of the Spirit, the works of the flesh will take over. And according to chapter 5, verse 21, those who do such things 
will not inherit the kingdom. Or as Paul puts it in verse 8 of chapter 6, if you stop sowing to the Spirit and sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption, not eternal life. Now this is very controversial. So listen real carefully here. Let it sink in. What is at stake in these verses is eternal life. What is at stake is not just sanctification or growth in the Christian life. What is at stake is final salvation and whether you wind up having any life. That's what's at stake in verse 8. Listen to the connection of thought now between verses 8 and 9. He who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not therefore grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap eternal life, if you do not lose heart. And that's not an arbitrary addition, is it, to say therefore and eternal life? Surely the connection of the verses makes that plain. You will reap eternal life if you sow to the Spirit. You will reap corruption if you sow to the flesh. Texts like these cause me as a pastor to understand my role. Not merely as a divine means to your sanctification but also as a God-appointed means to your salvation, week by week. Therefore, a sermon from this text, I think, if we follow Paul's pattern, is going to have that as its goal. This text was written to Christians in Galatia. And its aim was to see to it that those Christians reach eternal life. Therefore, a sermon based on this text must have as its aim that the saints in Bethlehem reach eternal life. That view of preaching is widely rejected in our conference and in evangelicalism and in fundamentalism nationwide. I got a letter from a retired pastor last summer after an article that I'd written called Brothers Save the Saints, in which I was making this same point. And this is what he said in response to that. Quote, In conclusion, we find that a pastor's ministry is limited to a believer's state and not his standing. Therefore, Our security and deliverance from the penal consequences of sin do not in any way have a relationship to a pastor's preaching. Close quote. That is a widespread and devastating view of preaching in our conference and in evangelicalism. And over against that, I simply appeal to your insight with me into Galatians chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Should I 
as a pastor teacher, speak to you the message of Paul. Should I preach to Bethlehem the way Paul preached to the Galatian Christians? Is not corruption in verse 8 the final penal consequence of sin? And is not eternal life in verse 8 the escape from the final penal consequence of sin? And is not our experience of the one or the other dependent in some way on whether we sow to the Spirit or sow to the flesh? And if so, ought not a pastor believe that his message based on this text is the divinely appointed means by which the Spirit of God will cause you, the saints, to persevere in well-doing and thus inherit eternal life. My goal in life is simply to be a faithful teacher of the Word of God for my joy, your good, and God's glory. And I cannot see how I can preach on this text without telling you, if you grow weary in well-doing, you will not inherit eternal life. That's what's at stake now. Let's follow the logic from verses 6 through the paragraph. You remember last week, verse 2 said, bear one another's burdens and you will be fulfilling the law of Christ. I think verse 6 is an illustration of burden-bearing. Another particular after the one mentioned up in verse 1. And what it is, is bearing the burden of Christian teachers so that they don't have to make money. Let's read it. Let him who is taught the Word share all good things with him who teaches. One way to bear the burdens of those who carry the main responsibilities of, of teaching in the church is to support them financially from all your good things so that they are free to study, and pray, and meditate. Evidently, there was some problem with this at, at, at the Galatian churches. Evidently, they had made a good start and had begun by supporting their teaching elders, freeing them up for the ministry, and then they had grown weary in this well-doing, and perhaps had argued that they were free in Christ and they can use their money on other things, and who needs teaching anyway? We already know enough truth from what Paul taught us. Money is scarce. These are hard times. I don't know what they were saying, but this I know from the text. Among the hundreds of things Paul could have chosen to mention by way of bearing each other's burdens, he chose the burden of supporting the teachers in the church. Now, of course, he had learned this from Jesus, you know. Remember when Jesus sent out the 70? He told them, uh, don't take anything. Just uh, stay in the houses with the people who are sons of peace and eat what they put before you. And when you leave, thank them. Because, he said... The laborer deserves his wages. 
Paul picked that up in 1 Timothy 5.17 and he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. And, and then he quotes Jesus, the laborer deserves his wages. Probably the closest parallel to Galatians 6.6 6 is 1 Corinthians 9.11. Because there Paul picks up on the sowing and reaping metaphor as well as the idea of supporting teachers. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.11, if we have sown spiritual good among you, is it too much to reap your material benefits? Now, four implications I see in this verse for our life together. First, teaching the word of God in the church is essential. It is not optional. We will not know God the way we ought to know him if Someone is not spreading before us regularly the whole counsel of God. Worship will become shallow. Affections will become frothy. Obedience will languish where the whole counsel of God is not being taught in power and depth from the word of God week in and week out. Paul considered it essential. That's implied in this verse. Second implication, those who have the main responsibility under God of teaching need freedom to study, meditate, and pray. Finding the meaning of biblical texts, recognizing how that meaning coheres with the totality of biblical revelation, and seeing how that meaning applies to and confronts the contemporary situation of the church is a glorious calling. And it is hard. It takes time. It takes effort. And what I love about Bethlehem is that most of you agree with me and support me in that calling. Just to bring you up to date, I've published in the Star, you remember, a year or so ago, what my schedule looks like. Well, here, here it is in a nutshell. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday mornings, I stay in my study at home from the time I get up until lunchtime, studying and praying and meditating. The afternoons of those three days, I'm available here at the church or visiting in the hospitals or elsewhere. Thursday, I take off and try not to show up. There's a wedding, I have to write wedding homilies all day Thursday. Friday and Saturday, from the time I get up, usually until the time I go to bed, I'm preparing messages for Sunday morning and evening. Or if I have some other engagement that I have to prepare for. Or if there's a wedding, I have to speak at. <laughs> Incidentally, regarding weddings, if you want me to marry you and sign your uh, certificate here, forget it. Go to City Hall. I am not a marrier. I'm a preacher. If you want to preach at your wedding, come on. I'll do it. I am not in the marrying business. That is a legal process. If you want me to be a teacher-preacher in your wedding, and you're for the Lord, I'm ready. I love to preach at weddings. I'm going to publish a book of those things one of these days. 
because I just love to think up new ways to confront couples with the Word of God. Well, now that was a little parenthesis. Let's see, where am I? The second implication is that we need freedom. We need time. And the third implication then is that pastor teachers should be paid so that they don't have to work to earn money doing other things besides the ministry of the word. Now, St. Paul and others may renounce that right for strategic purposes of gospel ministry. And I'm open to any of my brothers who want to go out and get a job and earn money another way. But the congregation who is being taught the word ought not to insist on that and ought to be eager and ready to free up the ministers of the word so that they have the time to study, pray, preach, and apply the word to the people. Fourth implication, when you give your money to that end, to support the ministry as as I preach it and these other men minister it and we support our missionaries who teach it elsewhere, when you do that, you are fulfilling the law of Christ according to verse 2. And if you drop down to verse 9, you are also not growing weary in well-doing and therefore doing the kind of thing that will bring you through to eternal life. So when Paul says in verses 9 and 10 that we should not grow weary in well-doing, but that we should do good to all men, especially those who are in the household of faith, he has in mind at least that we should use our money to support the teaching of the word. Verse 7. Verse 7 comes in now to reinforce the command of verse 6. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he's going to reap. Evidently, the people who don't want to share their goods with the teaching elders in the churches of Galatia had fallen prey to a deception which was working itself out in behavior that was a mockery to God. Maybe they were saying something like this. For freedom Christ has set us free. You people who deny yourselves good things in order to pay to hear the word of God, you're acting like Old Testament legalists. Pretty, pretty powerful stuff. And so they were giving in to the deception against which Galatians 5.13 warned, don't use your freedom as an occasion for the flesh. And even worse than that, they were treating the word of God, the teaching of the word with contempt, and in that sense, mocking God. But the text says, God is not mocked. Is he? Yes. They're mocking him. What does it mean when it says God is not mocked? I think it means what a good father means when he says to his child, I will not be spoken to like that. Well, of course he will, probably in two days. What does he mean? He means... If you speak to me like that, you will regret it. When God says, I am not mocked, he means, if you mock me, you will reap an avalanche of wrath. 
You reap what you sow. So don't be deceived. Well, what does that mean? When are they being deceived? Where is there time for deception? Between sowing and reaping. You have time to be deceived. You can sow selfishness all your life long and be deceived. That's going to make me happy. That's going to bring most joy for the longest period of time into my life. And at the end, awaken to the noise of the avalanche of greed coming back upon you. You will reap what you sow. Where have you been, Gehazi? Where, where did you go, Gehazi? Elisha said. Remember Gehazi? Where have you been with that bag? Didn't I heal Naaman of leprosy and say, no, I won't take any of your money. This is for the glory of God. Where have you been, Gehazi? Did you go to line your pockets with gold instead of magnifying the God of Israel? Gehazi, his leprosy will cleave to you and your descendants forever. For a man will reap what he sows. Your greed has come back upon your head. Where's your husband, Sapphira? Did you really sell the land for so much? Why have you despised the ministry of the word? Why have you plotted your gain and conspired to deceive the Lord? Behold, God is not mocked, Sapphira. The feet of those who carried your husband out and buried him are at the foot and will take you out. Whatever a woman sows, that shall she also reap. And so what Paul is saying in verses 6 and 7 is this. We honor God and his word when we take our money, which we might have used to increase our comfort and security and prestige, and give it to support the ministry of His holy word. But if we are deceived, and we think that keeping money for our private pleasures will bring us the most happiness, then we mock God, and our greed will come crashing back upon us, for we will reap what we sow. Verse 8 makes now very clear what's at stake. In this reaping what you sow. For he who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. What is at stake in your attitude to the teaching of God's word? And your attitude to the use of your money is eternal life. Now I know that for some of you. That sounds like a return to salvation by works, which Paul has demolished in this book. It isn't. Works are attitudes and actions of a heart which looks to itself for the achievement of virtue or contentment and expects to be credited for that achievement. And no man can save his own life through doing works of the law. But love is not a work of law. 
It is a fruit of the Spirit. And when we teach that salvation by works is wrong, and instead that final salvation depends on bearing the fruit of the Spirit, we're not guilty of Galatianism and salvation by works. All we're saying is what Paul said in Romans 8, 11. All who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. Nobody else, no matter what they say. If you are led by the Spirit, you are a child of God. That's the criterion. Genuine conversion. Let me insert here a word from Jesus. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Savior, Savior, Son of God, Son of God, our theology right. And he will simply say, Depart from me, you who grew weary in well-doing. Or, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Genuine conversion is a divine act by which the spirit of sonship is caused to dwell in your heart, which causes you to hate sin and turn from it, love righteousness, and have confidence in the grace of Christ. Or, to put it another way, If you're converted, truly, here's the way it happens. You hear the gospel, you are moved to hate and forsake your sin, and to put faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of those sins, and begin to walk by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Galatians 2.20 There are attitudes and actions which cannot continue to coexist with saving faith in the all-sufficiency of Christ. That's why Paul can say, salvation is a free gift. It is all of God's grace. It is mediated through faith, but if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap corruption. And if you sow to the did I say that right? If you sow, thank you. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you reap eternal life. Those are not contradictory teachings. Here's the hope of verse 8. All you have to do is sow to the Spirit. He who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, what does that mean? Is that works? I think it means that it's a picture. I think the picture is something like this. The Spirit is a field. And sowing to the Spirit means you're going to take your position out there in the Spirit. On the Spirit. And, and you will expect from the Spirit the produce of your life. Not from yourself. Notice that little word, your own flesh, in verse 8, the first half. He who sows to his own flesh. Big difference whether, whether you walk out on the field of your own flesh and expect coming up out of that field a 
achievements, contentment, that just result in rottenness, corruption. And whether you walk out onto the field of the Spirit, born on by the Spirit, casting the seeds of your resources in the Spirit, expecting the Spirit to cause them to grow up. What a world of difference in the way to live. It is not salvation by works. Do you get up in the morning and feel a deep need to be full of the Holy Spirit? To be empowered by the Spirit for your day and seek that fullness in prayer and the Word? Or do you get up in the morning and say, well, there's no time this morning. And besides, uh, I feel pretty strong and it's a normal day, so I don't need much help today. A prayer on the stairs will do. This may be the one thing you'll remember out of this message. I'll put it in a real catchy form. Prayer on the stairs versus pleas on the knees. Prayers on the stairs versus pleas on the knees. Do you feel a need or are you self-sufficient? Here's my definition. I try to put it into one sentence of what it means to sow to the Spirit. Sowing to the Spirit means recognizing where the sovereign Holy Spirit is intending to Bring up some luscious fruit. And walking over there and dumping all your resources in. That make sense to you? Recognizing where the Spirit, according to what we know about Him, intends to bring forth luscious fruit and pouring all your resources into that. In this text, He has one main product in mind. What was it that Jesus said would bring forth 30, 60, 100 fold? The ministry of the word. Where then, if you want to sow to the spirit, should you pour your resources into the ministry of the word? So the whole passage really does all hang together, doesn't it? From verse six, right on through to the end of the paragraph. There is more writing in this little envelope on Sunday morning during that moment of worship when we give our tithes and offerings than you can imagine. Many of you need to pray a lot about whether your priorities are right. And many of you are. And I praise God for you. Final admonition. Let us not grow weary in well-doing. All well-doing, but especially in the household of faith, and within that, especially the teaching of the Word of God, both at home and in our missions abroad. For you shall reap eternal life if you do not faint.